Over the course of the next few weeks, the wok and I grapple for power. I diligently cook with it every night to make success. To learn, I watch YouTube channels of Chinese chefs flipping stir fries with ease, peer into dingy restaurant kitchens in Chinatown and see the same. I feel left behind and ignorant, but it hurts too much to admit that it's my own fault. I put myself here. I try my hand at tomato and egg, a staple of my childhood, but I'm impatient, leaving the wok too cold as I pour in the eggs. They stick everywhere. I curse and maneuver the wok into my sink, where I scrub away the lacy sulfuric egg scraps as I hear news anchors speak of China being the next global superpower. The pit in my stomach clenches, as if to tell me, "You chose wrong." Hello and welcome to My Family Recipe, presented by Food Fifty Two and Heritage Radio Network. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host Arthi Menon, also the lead editor of the original essay series on Food Fifty Two. And on each episode of this podcast, I'll be taking you on a journey as I explore some much-loved heirloom recipes and the delicious stories behind them. Here with us today is Jenny Dorsey, a chef. A food writer and the founder of the non-profit community think tank Studio Atau. Two years ago, she contributed an essay to the My Family Recipe series, writing about how mourning a loved one led her to contend with a cultural heirloom that she hadn't yet laid claim to. That heirloom was a wok, a tool that is often synonymous with Chinese cooking. Jenny shares that she was 28 when she first bought it. And details the complex emotions and family memories that accompanied her decision to buy it, then season it, and cook with it. Welcome, Jenny, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jenny, you spent the first three years of your life living with your grandparents in China. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and also how relocation and distance played a role in your development? Yeah, so I was born in Shanghai, and my parents quickly, after my birth or shortly after my birth,、um, had to relocate to the U.S. to be students.、Um, There's only a window of time where they were allowed after their application, so unfortunately, that meant that I didn't spend a lot of time in my initial few years. And my grandparents really raised me. So I came to the U.S. when I was three. And very quickly,、um, it was obvious to my parents that I like didn't really know them. I don't remember this, but my mom says that she was surprised I didn't remember her. I still seemed enthusiastic, but very much was kind of clinging on to my grandparents.、Um, and I kind of remember like maybe around five or six, just growing up in the the small community where my parents were students, and my grandma and my grandpa were such a pivotal part of my life. Um, we did always have a great relationship, but they were very much, you know, the parents that I didn't have since my family,、um, my family was only the five of us, and both my parents were essentially always away studying or working.、Um, so my grandparents were kind of my support system, but at the same time, I was I soon 
then also became their support system. So even though they literally took care of me and, you know, bathed me and gave me food and whatnot, as I assimilated into US culture, even as like a kindergartner, even though my English was initially very, very bad, and it developed to be not bad over time, I also was kind of balancing that like, with my grandparents, I'm also taking care of them in a strange way, which I don't think I really understood or perhaps fully internalized when I was younger. And I think that led to conflict and a lot of resentment and frustration because it always seemed that they were part of this other world, you know, a world that I truly didn't know and didn't have any experience in because it's not like I'm actively clocking memories when I'm zero to three. And it felt like they were stuck there. And, you know, I'm in a different place and I want to grow and evolve here. Um, And it felt like they were holding me back in a way. And so I think a lot of that was the the root source, even if I didn't really understand it, the root source of a lot of conflict or an uncertain, like an an uncertain balance within our family of just trying to figure out our own identities and what it meant to be my own person. I can understand that. I mean, the expectations of assimilation and integration can really take a toll on immigrant families, whether in the US or or elsewhere. What What pressure did you feel or perhaps even put on yourself? I think a big part of it, beyond just getting a hold of the English language, was not standing out in a way that was different. You know, I think what is so interesting is that uh, American individualism is one of our greatest, and I don't mean like as in a good way, but just our biggest export. And that is such an indoctrination that, every person in the US goes through. I don't even mean every child, like every person that lives here is indoctrinated into that sort of belief system. And when you are young, you're always kind of trying to find this balance of like, you want to stand out and be an individual, be different, right? You want to find whatever your teacher thinks is going to be like your talent, or you always, you want to shine bright and be different from the other kids. But as an immigrant child that is not familiar with the customs of the U.S. and you're also afraid of sticking out or being an individual in the wrong way. And I think so much of my childhood, as well as into my, you know, preteens and teens is literally trying to be an individual in the right way. And there is no written guidebook, right, of how to be cool or how to be unique because It's one thing when a white teenager, you know, in wherever state she was, wears like a chipao and everyone's like, wow, what a cool individual thing to wear to prom. But if I did that, that's like weird. And so there's all these rules of like what you can and cannot do that apply specifically for you. And because your family was supposed to kind of provide for you, take care of you, and your parents are supposed to kind of know everything, right? As a child, you have this idea that your parents know everything and they don't know anything about this stuff. I think a lot of that not only creates pressure to push them away, but also creates a pressure inside the child individual to figure this all out yourself. Mm. That's a that's a lot of pressure on a on a young child. Um and you write that eventually you lose touch with your parents for quite a while as an adult, uh, but then reached out again after you hear of your grandfather passing away. And your mum says tearfully that your your grandma misses you and that she wants to cook for you 
but before the, before you're even ready to respond, you decide to order a walk. What prompted that purchase? Uh, in fact, when you order one, you stop to ask yourself, does anyone in my family even cook with one? Was it on a whim? My family and I did not speak for a long time due to a myriad of reasons, but some of which was like career and food and um, just longstanding issues of things that should have been resolved, maybe in therapy, but there, uh, I was going to therapy and they were not. But when it came to the walk, it seemed like in a way, in a, a more approachable way to find peace with all this the stuff that I was dealing with internally. Part of that is trying to figure out who I am. But within the food world, especially as someone who is a person of color, you're constantly asked to make food of a certain ethnicity of your background, regardless of if you have that expertise. I mean, I've talked about that a lot. And my nonprofit is done a lot of work around tokenization. But as someone who this was pre, you know, nonprofits work on that, um, trying to figure out that space of like, what does it mean to be Chinese American and like Chinese food, but not really know about Chinese food? Or, you know, I don't, Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken, you know, like, that's not something that just like comes to you. That's something that needs to be taught just like any other thing. Um, and the walk seemed like, a way of maybe remembering certain things or learning new things, but at my own pace and a rhythm that I could control. Whereas what the hardest thing with my family, and I would argue probably everybody's families, is that you can't control how the other party is going to perceive and receive the stuff that you give to them. So even if I go to my parents and say that I want a certain relationship, I want them to interact with me in a certain way or whatnot, like, that doesn't mean that they will. Um, and that kind of like powerlessness, I think was what I was really struggling with because being, I wasn't at a place where I could really compromise that. I couldn't figure that out. But this, this walk, this strange symbol of, you know, to many people, Chinese cuisine that I was very unfamiliar with um, seemed like a bridge to that space. In fact, that walk had been sitting in your, in your basket for a while. Yes, it so, definitely had. And I think another thing is like, you know, you can find walks of all sizes, shapes and prices. And I, I didn't know what it was like a weird commitment thing, right? It was like, how much research am I going to do to find the right walk? And like, how much money am I willing to spend? Because yeah. I could buy a $20 walk. But does that like somehow reinforce that I think it's cheap or that Chinese food is cheap, and I don't want to invest in it? You know, there's so many like weird thoughts, maybe weird is the wrong word here, but there were so many kind of different, conflicting, confusing thoughts floating in my head. So I like, couldn't even decide what walk to buy. You write, and I quote, my nostalgia mixes with self-disgust as I season the smoking walk. Maybe what I projected at them, your grandparents, was fear. Fear that I would not be accepted in this new life where I straddled two worlds, China and America. Would you mind unpacking that for us? Yeah, I think there is something visceral. I think for people in the food industry, there's something visceral about cooking that kind of brings you back to like, why am I cooking? Who am I doing this for? What is the point of this? Or at least when you're really in the moment. I think sometimes what is hard is when 
food is also your job, you kind of lose sight of that and you're like mass producing like so much stuff, you know, you just got to mm. get through service or whatnot. But for me, that particular moment, as I'm like trying to learn about the walk, and therefore it's getting my undivided attention. Um, not only am I trying to juggle some of the things of like, is it hot enough? Did I do it right? Do I need to season this again? Um, but also like, why am I kind of in this space? What am I doing here? Why am I why am I even making this food? And it's naturally gave rise to the question of how come I don't know how to do this? Like, why, why don't I know how to do this? And that is, or that was such a reflection for me, just to think about like, for so long, how much I pushed away or how much I was afraid of and very, very timid to lean into the, my quote, unquote, Chinese proclivities, because I, I didn't want to be left behind. I didn't want to be seen like old and stodgy and, and just, you know, like not ill suited to be in this world. Because to me, like the representation of all of that, of all that fear is my grandparents. Yeah, you're just doing the best you can knowing what you know. Um, And on top of on top of these emotions, you, you speak of experiencing some sort of guilt about not already knowing how to use the walk. And it becomes a kind of symbol to you as you struggle with making childhood staples like tomato and egg uh, and seasoning it properly. What was that walk a symbol of? You can make anything you can make in a walk, like in a pan, right? You just get a different result. Um, And so it's not like I was making anything that I hadn't made before. And so usually you know, I can breeze in and make tomato egg in like three seconds, because it's like something I grew up eating and whatever. There's no anxiety involved in that. But this walk added this new layer of like, oh, my God, am I gonna like screw it up somehow. And just having to stay in that analyze it, take a look at it, reflect on it, just like breathe in that anxiety. Also, um, I don't know, I think it it brought like a, a new dimension to what I was doing or being a little bit more conscientious and in the moment of what I was cooking and why I was cooking it. A lot of that was realizing like the walk itself and the the preparation method beyond flavor um, added its own like specific type of memory, specific type of specific point of view. I think that the piece captured the main important sentiment, which is like something that can be inanimate can become such a living, breathing representation of so many ideas. You conclude the piece by writing, what is there to do but to accept myself and start over? This is my walk now. Was this a message of forgiveness to your younger self, a kind of release? You know, I'm thinking of you and your sort of never give up cleaning of this walk to sort of to get some sense of its old gleaming self back. And I'm thinking of, I think of the sloughing off of old layers um, of your former self. And did you feel like this was a moment of, of release, a moment of forgiveness? Yeah, my husband always tells me, like, you got to learn how to forgive yourself. And I think part of that definitely has stayed with me. I mean, he said that for years. But um, I also am a big fan of this book called The Choice Theory by... Uh, by William Glasser, um, which is all about like, you kind of, in a nutshell, you just, you choose to do everything. I mean, there's obviously limitations of that. I don't want to talk about structural inequities of what limits your choice, because then we will be in many more episodes. But I think fundamentally, what I was coming to a head at, 
at that point in the story is, well, I can choose to let this overwhelm me and continue to be the sore spot, the moment of sadness, this kind of unresolved tension and conflict and very much based in a bit of like self it's it's constantly self-pity and self-hate at the same time I actually think those two are in a way the same thing Mm. and um I could continue to be in that space or I can say like I literally can't do anything about the reality of what I am currently experiencing so I guess I'm just going to keep going going to take a very short break and then return to zoom out of this piece and look at Jenny's work with Studio Atal, as well as personal essays as a medium. Hi, I'm Dylan Hoyer, Heritage Radio Network's communications manager and a producer of this podcast. HRN is an independent, member-supported, non-profit podcast network. We have more than 35 weekly podcasts, each exploring a different corner of the food world. If you're enjoying My Family Recipe, we have a few more culinary listens to add to your podcast diet. HRN's flagship show, Meat in 3, is a great place to get started. It features four segments each week, one deep dive and three shorts that will get you introduced to the stories we love to tell at HRN. There's also Speaking Broadly, an interview show highlighting brilliant, curious, game-changing women, hosted by Dana Cowan, the former longtime editor-in-chief of Food & Wine. Or you might enjoy Cooking in Mexican from A to Z. The hosts are mother and son, but also award-winning celebrity chefs, restaurateurs, and cookbook authors. Aron Sanchez and Zarela Martinez take listeners on a culinary journey featuring regional ingredients that are the soul of Mexican cuisine. Listen to those podcasts wherever you're listening now, or visit heritageradionetwork.org to browse our library of 35 weekly shows and more than 15,000 archived episodes. Start exploring at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to My Family Recipe. We're going to transition our chat with Jenny from the personal to the political. Something, Jenny, that you're very adapted doing, especially in your work with Studio Atel. For our listeners that don't know, can you tell us a little bit more about Studio Atel? Yeah, so Studio Atel is a 501c nonprofit community think tank. Our main focus and ethos is how do we create change from the ground up so that we ask people who are actually affected by problems, by issues, by changes that are coming in their future to uplift their recommendations, to uplift what they think will work because the people affected by issues are the best at solving those issues. Mm. They have the most stake in it, obviously. Um, And they are literally, you know, in it every day. So we should be listening to them instead of having decisions be handed down in a top down manner from people who are not experiencing these issues, don't have a stake um, in solving these issues, really, and may also benefit from inequity staying the same. So um, we really want to flip the script on how change in general is looked at um, and provide ways of others 
incorporating that sort of methodology into their work as well. In the essay, we witness your your struggle with issues around identity and connection and acceptance. I'm really interested in learning a little bit more about your journey from where we leave you to where you are today, um, challenging the, the status quo and using your food and your nonprofit um, Studio Tao to empower people to have these difficult but effective conversations around change. Take us through that journey a little bit. I think as someone who has been trying, you know, at this point, been in the food world a while, had kind of started doing a little bit more writing, was just hitting a lot of the same roadblocks of being tokenized and being kind of stuck in a space where I didn't really feel like I actually could be an individual uh, within the industry that I loved and cared about and in the career that I wanted, despite the rhetoric that we're constantly being fed of how much we care about uh, uh, individualism and helping everyone be like who they are. And there's a certain amount of both willful colorblindness in that statement, but also just like a lack of really understanding all the pre-existing things that have, you know, brought us to kind of this point, similar mm-hmm. to what we were saying uh, a little bit earlier in this podcast about, you know, you can choose to do things, but there's a lot of things that restrict your choice as well. Um, so I think I was struggling that on a personal level. And after writing this essay, and um, as I started to build out the studio, um, and more seriously, uh, build out like our think tank arm, that was always a driving piece of how do we really if, if I were to fix this issue that I'm currently experiencing, how would I like to fix it? How what, the, what are the changes that I want to see? Who do I want to see implement it? And how do I want to see those implementations, you know, be carried out over time and, you know, be actually accountable to folks like myself who would then be affected by those changes? Um, I think it kind of like started the, uh, the process of just thinking about, I'm experiencing this little microcosm of this issue and it is a big structural issue. So how do we tackle like the roots of this problem as opposed to just trying to solve it or fix it for me and my friends? Let's talk about personal essays for a bit. They're obviously a very powerful medium, um, but can also become this box that becomes very difficult for writers, especially marginalized writers, writers of color to break out of. It's something that as editors in in food media, we're thinking about more and more, we're talking about more and more, we are trying to fight more and more. And and you've written about how green lighting personal essays is is a good place to start, but obviously it cannot end there. And you need to have a much wider range of, of content and do it more consistently across your publication. So Jenny, do you have conflicting feelings about this form of publishing? I wouldn't say they're conflicting so much that I sometimes worry about the personal essay realm becoming a a point of deflection for food media to say that they are doing the right, they are doing the work and moving in the right direction without really changing a lot of the problems and systems that are holding us back. And I'll um, shout out one of our editors, Osai who really, you know, made it a point that we include uh, the comment about personal essays cannot be the end all be all of where your BIPOC representation in food media um, like sits because so much of what we see from food media in in the personal essay realm is like a lot of marginalized writers 
getting their first story or being able to actually get this literal space, digital or physical, um, of, you know, saying what they want in the world. And that becomes problematic in two ways. One, because, you know, you get stuck in this thing that you're always having to talk about basically the same kind of things. I'm not saying that every essay is the same, but like you always have to draw upon your family or this thing that happened to you or whatever. And maybe you don't want to do memoir writing for the rest of your life. But then the other thing is that we are kind of committing to this idea that marginalized writers always have to give up what are oftentimes painful or very sensitive, if not painful, stories in order to be accepted by the mainstream, that they owe food right, food media something of themselves in order to be accepted into food media society. You know, mostly white writers may never write a personal essay piece, and they can still do reported stories, they can do, still do the videos, they can do all sorts of things. But for marginalized writers, a lot of times the personal essay is kind of this like rite of passage almost to get into food media, because there is no other way for you to even get like an editor relationship. And so if that personal essays become essentially another gatekeeping mechanism for food media, then we haven't actually broken down these barriers, right? We've just created a new barrier called the personal essay barrier that you have to overcome in order to get into food media, which is not the point of all this change. And, you know, um, sort of expanding on that, a week ago in Studio Tao's newsletter, you published an essay by V. Speer, who is a longtime champion for LGBTQ plus leadership in the, in the food space, titled, You Don't Owe Event Organizers a Performance of Your Trauma. It touches on how certain interviews and panels try to capitalize on the pain of marginalized participants. And instead, V offers ideas and strategies for finding better ways to focus the conversation and set boundaries. How do you approach setting boundaries in the, in the very personal conversations that you have at Studio Atau? Setting boundaries is one of those things that everyone talks about, and it sounds very easy in theory, but the reality is it's very difficult to set boundaries when you don't really have any power. And so there needs to be some underlying relationship and respect and uh, equalizing of power for boundaries to work, right? Um, it's very hard not only to set boundaries, but to uphold them. And back to your question about how do we do that at the studio, I think a lot of this boundary work is built on cultivating relationships. Right. So if we want to set good boundaries with our own staff, then we have to talk internally of like, we have monthly team meetings. Like we always encourage everyone to share something personal, like what they've been up to this month. But like, if they don't want to share, maybe they're seeing someone you like, whatever, like that's not something that should be pressed. Mm. It's kind of like, constantly finding ways to always understand where the other person is coming from, have them really consent and buy into what you're doing um, and have an open channel of relation, uh, open relationship where they feel comfortable enough to like talk to you, have a channel of communication to you um, and let you know if like something's wrong. An important question for our team in working on this podcast, in fact, is navigating some of these issues and I'd love to get your thoughts on navigating this line between exploring the beauty and honesty of a personal essay and perhaps exploiting it. Yeah, I think it really comes, again, back down to what the person writing 
the essay wants to do, how much they want to share and not, not making them feel like they need to do anything if they don't want to. Um, Mm. So I've had personal essay situations where the editor just didn't like the way that I was writing about certain things and worked very hard to basically rewrite it in a tone that it didn't fit mine. And that becomes like, no editor did not like force me to tell some traumatizing story I didn't want to tell. But now I'm telling the story through a literal voice that's not mine, which is exploitative and extractive in its own way, right? Because you're taking someone's story and retrofitting it into your vision of that story and not letting them have their own, their own say over who they are. Um, so I think, if anything, that is the kind of the quieter, more nefarious sort of um, extraction mm. versus like editors straight up telling you you have to include traumatizing stuff because I think generally people understand you're not supposed to do that. Gosh, that's just like double the trauma to, you know, have to tell your story and tell it in someone else's voice because your voice isn't deemed appropriate somehow or accessible. Before we sign off, Jenny, is there anything that we haven't touched upon in our conversation that you'd like to share with us? Um, I will say one note that I thought was interesting about this essay. And I think a lot of personal essays that have recipes with it specifically, Mm -hmm. since we are talking about food media is that I also think there is a certain kind of learning curve for people who are coming and perhaps looking at that recipe specifically and detaching it from that personal essay piece, because maybe the recipe is not what they expected. The recipe doesn't fall in line with what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. And that sort of, uh, that sort of commentary from outsiders mm-hmm. can be very difficult for the personal essay writer to contend with, right? Because it's less about the ins and outs, the technicality of the recipe. The recipe is about kind of the memories and all that stuff. That's the point of a personal essay. Um, so I think the main thing that I received on this particular piece was like, the recipe is too hard. And mm. it's like too hard by whose standards, yeah. right? Um, who, who gets to decide what is hard or what is not hard? Um, and what does that also, what are the implicit biases behind like, how easy a family recipe should be and perhaps how easy a Chinese family recipe should be. Like those are kind of these outstanding questions that the food media as a whole for sure and definitely like kind of personal essay space will have to contend with slash is contending with now. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up. These are conversations that I know I as, as an editor of personal essays, but also my fe- fellow editors have with the writers and, and, and with readers, really, because that's really important for us to anticipate some of these difficult discussions and, and sort of expect them and, and know how to respond. And you also brought up a very important point about what happens when this family recipe is, is extruded from the, from the essay, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I just want to thank you, Jenny, for, you know, reminding us that it's okay to have uncomfortable conversations, especially within your own spheres of influence. And it's okay for food to make people uncomfortable. Um, so thank you for standing up against things like tokenization in the food world and challenging the gatekeepers in the food world and fighting for equal access. We have so much to learn from you. I'm thrilled that you could join us on this episode. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
Thank you for listening to My Family Recipe. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review so we know just what you think about delicious stories. Special thanks for this episode to Jenny Dorsey. You can find her essay along with more resources and readings from Studio Atau in our show notes. My Family Recipe is produced by Dylan Hoyer and Hannah Forden. Our Julia Child Foundation Fellow is Kelly Spivey, and our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Cora Lee is Food52 Podcast Network's producer. Our theme song is Vittoro by Aeronaut. This show is a collaboration between Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. There's much more to read and listen to. Find even more stories at foodfight2.com and heritageradionetwork.org.